Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, May 30th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an 11-year-old African-American boy shot by police in his Mississippi home is on the road to recovery. Meteorologists are predicting a normal hurricane season this year. Plus, some Mississippians are celebrating diversity as a live-action version of The Little Mermaid. It opened this weekend. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An Indianola police officer is on paid leave accused of shooting an 11-year-old African-American boy. Adarian Murray's out of the hospital and continuing to recover. He called police on behalf of his mother for a domestic disturbance. The police arrived and ordered the 11-year-old to come outside, but an officer opened fire while he was still in the house and came through the hallway. Our Will Stribling speaks with attorney Carlos Moore, who is representing Murray and his family. He is doing somewhat better. Still has problems breathing because of that collapsed lung. He tells me sometimes I feel like he's suffocating. Uh, it's really hard to catch his breath to breathe, uh, but he's using a spirometer at home to try to build back his lung capacity. He has the gunshot wound. He showed me his uh, wound, entry wound and exit wounds. He is undergoing counseling. He started counseling today. He's very traumatized. He keeps asking over and over, why the officer did this? What did he do wrong? Why did, he, why did the officer shoot him? And, and what did he do wrong? And I keep telling them, his mother keep telling him he did nothing wrong, and we don't know why. Uh, we've asked the city why. The city hadn't told us why. The officer hadn't told us why. Uh, but what we do know is he obeyed the officer's command. He came out of his room with nothing in his hands and was shot. He, uh, he was not a threat to anyone. He was simply obeying the command uh, of the officer and ended up getting shot. He's four feet uh, ten, approximately, and uh, uh, the person, the, the grown man, and the, the intruder, uh, would have been able six feet by six two. So there's no way he could have been mistaken for a man. Uh, so we don't know what this veteran officer was doing. This is a sergeant. He's a chef supervisor. He should have known that he's a veteran officer. Uh, had previously been named the best cop in Indianola. Uh, the mother is traumatized. Uh, she's missing a lot of time off of work. Uh, she she feels guilty for even having her son call the police because uh, she thinks she did something wrong for calling for help for having her son and her mom call for help. So she started counseling today as well. 
the city's response thus far, like that when they went to city hall, that the mayor, if I understand correctly, wouldn't speak to to the mother at all, and they've uh, refused to release the body cam footage. Say on Thursday for the sit in, and you came face to face with the mayor, and I definitely asked him for the body foot camera, uh, body uh, camera footage, um, and for him to say something to the family. Hi, we sorry. We regret this happened. Anything on behalf of the city, he would not say a word. Only thing he told me was that we don't have nine people to come inside the house uh, for the protest at the time. Uh, so he could, I know he can talk because he told me that, but he wouldn't say anything else. I would have had to assume he was mute or something because he's not said anything uh, until that point. Is there any sort of timeline for when y'all are going to be able to get that footage or the city will address this issue further, or has it just been radio silence, really? Radio silence, uh, the MBI told me, Mississippi Bureau of Investigation lead, investi- uh, lead agent told me that we could get a copy of the body count footage once the MBI investigation is complete. Uh, that's not acceptable to the family. Uh, we need answers sooner than later. This uh, young boy and his family is, is trauma- are traumatized, and they need answers sooner than later. Um, and so we are going to use every tool at our disposal to try to get the uh, body camera footage and the um, uh, surveillance video footage from the convenience store across the street to try to find out what was going on and what can be seen and heard uh, at the time of the shooting. Um, I will file the federal lawsuit on Tuesday. At that point, I will have subpoena power. Um, so uh, we will use every tool in our arsenal, every weapon in our arsenal to try to seek justice and get answers for this family. Uh, the family is also concerned with pros- criminal prosecution. Uh, this was aggravated assault, um, and we have I reached out to the district attorney, Sunflower County District Attorney, Dwayne Richardson, on the defendant's behalf, and I believe that was on Wednesday. We have not had any response. Yeah, what does what does the uh, the family want to see done by the city here? I know that the officer is on administrative leave right now, and they want to see him fired. What other actions need to be taken? The three demands are immediate termination, release of the body count footage, and uh, criminal prosecution. Uh, short of that, uh, I don't think anything is going to be able to make it right. We are going to uh, file the federal lawsuit. Uh, they owe this child uh, and the damages for causing this, uh, this harm uh, that could have killed this uh, young man. So uh, they will have to pay. Uh, those damages and to save themselves a lawsuit, they could come to the negotiation table before Tuesday and as soon as possible start negotiating with the family. Um, uh, the mother and the child, they love and you know, they don't want to have to take this action, but uh, they are not going to rest until their rights are vindicated uh, and we get some justice. And so uh, they need to train the officers better. Uh, their main officers, they need to fire. There's no hope for uh, the case that needs to be gone. It needs to be terminated, but for the rest of them, they need to be some significant training to make sure this never happens again. Do you expect the city to come to the table before Tuesday or just didn't don't see that happening at all? I don't see it happening at all. The day being Friday after, it's Friday afternoon and there's a holiday on Monday. Um, I, I don't expect that. I did hope spring eternal. And how did the, the demonstration in the city go? It went well. Uh, we stood our ground and made our demands and we had about a dozen people there supporting the family. I think we had about two dozen there for the press conference on on Monday. And so we are united uh, with uh, a dairy that's encouraged about a groundswell of support he's receiving across the nation and around the world. Uh, we believe that we will be victorious uh, in the end. Uh, these temporary delays do not discourage us. We know that um, uh, we are on the right side uh, of 
justice here, and we know that uh, we will get justice. But they did nothing wrong and everything right. Carlos Moore is an attorney representing the family of 11-year-old Adarian Murray, who was shot May 20th by a police officer in his own home. Coming up, meteorologists predict an average hurricane season in Mississippi, but they say flooding caused by those storms are becoming increasingly dangerous. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is expected to have a normal hurricane season this year. And that itself is good news. It's estimated there will be at least 12 named storms in the coming months. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Matthew Rosencrantz. He's lead meteorologist for the Seasonal Hurricane Outlook at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says now is the time for folks to prepare for potential storms. And understanding their risks. Those that live inland, a risk of heavy rainfall from the storms. Those that live just near the coast, then storm surge. Y'all are predicting that this will be a normal hurricane season, but what does that mean? How many hurricane, how many named tropical storms or hurricanes can people expect this year? The 2023 Atlantic hurricane outlook calls for 12 to 17 named storms, five to nine hurricanes, of which one to four could become major hurricanes, which are category three, four, or five and have winds of at least 111 miles per hour. Normal for the Atlantic for named storms is 14, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. When should people be watching these storms, and when should they take concern if being notified that one of these storms is growing? So the National Hurricane Center, they watch every day. Um, They have someone on shift 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, watching the tropics. Um, and they'll have in investigation areas where they see cloud clusters that kind of look like they're starting to come together in a tropical storm. And there are tropical weather outlooks that highlight potential for formation go out seven days into the future now. So we have quite a bit of lead time. Sometimes it's shorter than that, but it can be up to seven days into the future before even a tropical storm could form. Can you speak to how y'all are watching uh, different types of weather activity over several years to be able to predict these storms and how often they'll be forming? The state of the ocean temperatures around the planet uh, are taken into account in this forecast. Um, we, under- we constantly measure and analyze them for how, how they're changing, how fast they change from warm to cold, how often they change from warm to cold, um, or and back to warm. Um, This year, we are expecting an El Nino to develop after three years of La Nina, um, which was quite rare. It was only the third time it's happened on our record. Um, So we're expecting an El Nino this year with a 93% chance of being an El Nino during the core of the hurricane season, 
Um, and there's a 72% chance that that will be a moderate strength El Nino, which are known to have some decent impacts um, on the tropical circulation in the Atlantic. And can you refresh on what exactly those phrases mean? Yeah, so El Nino and La Nina are a change in the sea surface temperatures in the central Pacific, kind of just kind of straight south of um, Hawaii um, along the equator. And that, when you change the sea surface temperatures over a broad area of the Pacific, it literally changes wind patterns over the entire planet. One of the places it does have an impact is in the tropical Atlantic, um, kind of east of Cuba, um, south to South America, and all the way east to Africa, um, where it'll increase the wind shear, which is the contrast in direction and speed uh, between winds at low levels and winds at high levels. Um, so when that wind shear is very high, that is bad for tropical cyclone formation and or intensification. El Nino also makes the atmosphere in the Atlantic less conducive to thunderstorm formation. And that's one of the ways that tropical cyclones form is you get clusters of thunderstorms that kind of grow and feed off of each other into a tropical depression and then potentially into a tropical storm and a hurricane. I was looking at y'all's release, and I noticed one fact that really stood out to me. You know, hurricanes are traditionally known for their wind shear and uh, storm surges being some of the most deadly hazards of them. But y'all are noting that over the past 10 years, flooding from tropical storm rainfall has been the single deadliest hazard. Can you speak to that? How, how should Mississippians be looking at that and prepared for it in case there is a hurricane that does hit our coast? Yeah, so that's why earlier on I did mention the those who live inland are still at risk, major risk from a hurricane. Even if you're 20, 30, 40 miles inland, you're at major risk from that inland flooding. Um, these storms are bringing more moisture with them. Um, there's a little bit of noted slowdown in the speed of the storm, so therefore they can drop more rain in a given area. Um, and also, we we built more stuff. We have more parking lots. We have more buildings. And that's everywhere that rain can't just go right into the ground and it has to run off somewhere else. So now that other place has to deal with twice as much water. And one of the, another notable part is where the rivers will meet the ocean. So then you have storm surge forming in from one direction and you have these heavy rainfall that's coming downstream from the other direction. And you get a lot of what we call total water level, which is fresh water and the storm surge coming in together. And that can be a big factor for your southern coast should a heavy rain event happen upstream in the Mississippi and be coming down the Mississippi. And then you have a storm coming in from the east and you're having all those, that, all that volume come in together. Do y'all have any methods going into this hurricane season that y'all are developing to try to better monitor these storms Absolutely. We have researchers and engineers that are working on unmanned systems that they look like airplanes, but they're flying underneath the sea. So we call them gliders. They're underneath the surface of the ocean, tens of ten to hundreds of feet down, measuring the currents and the temperatures of the ocean water. So that gives us a sense of how much energy a hurricane could tap into. We also have sail drones, which are kind of like small sailboats, but they are unmanned as well which means they can go into the middle of these very intense hurricanes. We had one go in the middle of a Category 4 hurricane 
where the waves were 40 feet tall, and it came out unscathed. Whereas if we sent a human in there, they could possibly die. So it's, it's, it's a neat use of this new technology. And we have more of those going out this year. Matt Rosencrantz is a meteorologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration studying the probability of hurricanes. Coming up, the premiere of the live-action Little Mermaid. It drew large crowds in Mississippi over the weekend. It's also sparking conversations about diversity in the media. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A live-action adaptation of Disney's The Little Mermaid premiered this weekend in one of the largest Memorial Day openings ever. Haley Bailey, she's the actress in the film, an African-American woman. She plays Ariel, a mermaid who wants to experience life as a human being. The casting decision was criticized early on by some members of the public for race-swapping the character. But Cassandra Welchlin, executive director of the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable, says the film opens up many doors for young black Mississippians to see themselves represented in such an iconic role. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Welchlin about the premiere and what it could mean for people of color throughout the state. It was such an exciting weekend um, for us to be able to celebrate the airing of the screening of The Little Mermaid because of the black woman that was playing in it. We actually partnered with WIN with black women and Disney um, to actually be a part of screening um, The Little Mermaid. Disney reached out to um, partner with this organization and asked that 100 black women and girls would commit to um, buying out theaters all across the country. And so we're part of that network. And so we said, we will do that. And what was happening was white women um, were, um, Disney was getting a lot of pushback from white women who um, didn't want to see, you know, this black girl air as a little mermaid. And so We wanted to show our support for this movie that was very historic. And so we said, well, we would join in because representation matters. And so we did. Um, We partnered with several local organizations to rent out two screenings here in the Jackson area and then partner with the city of Greenville, um, Children's Defense Fund, and Southern Rural Black Women to rent out a theater um, in Greenville. It meant so much to Um, really see not just this black girl playing this lead role in a movie that aired, you know, from 1989, but to see just not that, but there was so much cultural representation, you know, from the Caribbean islands, from the dancing, like there was so much representation that existed in that movie. And so we were just so proud to see 
you know, our culture represented um, in the movie. And so we were just excited to be able to, to share to share this with the community. What was your thoughts watching the movie? What's some of your takeaways? My takeaways from the movie was really just seeing, you know, this incredible black woman, you know, play the lead. To see her have such an amazing presence and knowing that uh, I brought my girls, you know, to it. We saw other black girls um, who came to the movie and the smiles on their face was just incredible. And, you know, we're growing up in a generation now where, you know, young people are seeing themselves. And what that means is that when you see yourself, you believe that you can do that very thing. And so um, the conversations that we heard when people were coming in, dads was bringing their daughters, families were coming together. After the movie, you know, we did a few interviews with some of those families. Like, what did this mean to you? And they was like, it was just so great to be able to see myself, to see the joy on my black girl's face. It was amazing. And we had, you know, young boys in there who could see, you know, the lead roles of some of the um, other characters in there that whose voice sounded like their voice, right, or who looked like them with dreadlocks. Um, Haley Bailey, like, she had dreadlocks. Um, and so hair mattered, right? Um, so she, they can see their representation in there, um, full lips. It was just amazing just to be a part of that, knowing that our community showed up and the box office actually said the numbers exceeded what exceeded in 1989, the first movie. And so we did our part and um, just so excited that we could just be, be a part of that. I wanted to talk about the discourse around this movie. It, when it was first announced that Haley Bailey was going to be performing in the role of Ariel, uh, a role that was portrayed by a redheaded... So, you know, you're right. There was a lot of pushback. Um, as I said earlier, there was pushback even from white women who basically said that they um, that it shouldn't be... You shouldn't change. Um, it shouldn't be this, you know, black woman. It should be... Um, this white redhead girl. To me, that's also a part of what I call white privilege and also um, so much of the whitewashing that has occurred in these stories and the racism that exists um, from film um, that we know and in commercials you don't you haven't seen you know in the past the representation of black and brown people. And so it is a new day. And we're saying that it is now time for the representation to be seen on these big screens. Um, The world is not white. Um, Our communities are black, are brown. We are just as important um, as, you know, white women, white girls, and our girls matter, and they need to see themselves. And so the pushback was definitely there, but we also stood up and said, we matter, you know, in this community, um, and and we need to be seen, and our young people need to see themselves uh, portrayed in these big films. And so, um, we're saying, you know, we won't allow the whitewashing to happen, um, and we want to be able to have a presence in this, you know, on the big screen because the community. 
um, our communities are not just white. Our communities are black. Our communities are brown. And so it meant a lot to be able to partner with Win With Black Women and Disney to air um, and screen this important movie. Cassandra Welchelin is executive director of the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kobe. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.